Are we witnessing the last chapter in the story of Jeff Sessions? Or can he pull out a win in next week's Republican primary runoff and win back the Senate seat he once held? Elena Plott of the New York Times recently published a powerful profile on Alabama's former senator and the man who once had, and then very quickly lost, the confidence of President Donald Trump. The story reads at times like a tragedy. Sessions got everything he ever dreamed of, only to have it snatched away in the most humbling fashion. And in some ways, the moment we are living in right now represents Sessions' worldview even more than it does Trump's. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today I'm speaking with Elena Plott about her profile on Jeff Sessions, her life growing up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, her work with The Times, and the night that she was shot with a bullet that still lodged in her arm. So let's dive into this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Elena Plott, thank you for coming on The Reckon Interview. Hey, John. Thank you for having me. Last week, you published another one of your brilliant profiles, this time examining erstwhile senator and former U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions and kind of his rise and fall and possible rise again. It was a terrific piece that I think really kind of captured the paradoxes of him. But what did you learn about Jeff Sessions while writing that piece? The first thing, John, may sound kind of banal, but... I mean, it's the first thing that comes to mind for me. So even though I was born and raised in Alabama, covered Congress right when I got to D.C., I had never spoken to Jeff Sessions in person. I had done one phone call with him several years ago when I was at National Review, but had never spoken to him in person and really had this idea of him as someone who was just like exceedingly polite, very mindful of delivery and diction and all these things and just kind of genteel. You know what I mean? Like I just had this image that I was very sure of. And then when I met with him in Bay Manette, Alabama at a Ruby Tuesday, it quickly became clear that that really does not capture the half of it with him. I mean, I found myself Mm -hmm. really taken aback just at a sheer personality level. He's rolling his eyes about stuff. He's making you know, weird faces. He makes very clear that he would rather be anywhere but there talking to me, especially at the beginning. (laughs) Kind of an openness with how every question made him feel and his inclination to answer it or deal with it, which to be honest, even though it surprised me, I really appreciated it because it did feel honest, which as you know, covering politics, you don't often get. No, particularly Alabama politicians. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I was impressed that he sat down with you for two hours. Is that that what it was? Yeah, it was two two hours and it it took a long time to wrangle a sit down at all. Um, And basically what happened was I learned that he was having his first kind of post-corona events on the in-person campaign trail. And so I woke up, I'd been in Montgomery for another story. I woke up at 5 a.m. to get down there to Robertsdale for an 8.30 breakfast that he was having. And kind of once he saw me there, I think it was like, okay, I might as well, you know, make time for this because she's here. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of how that happened. But once we sat down and I, I think I try to get at this in the piece a bit, you know, his communications director, I, I mentioned it only once in the story, but w- there was even another time when he kind of tried to say, okay, you know, we've been at it a while, it's time to go. But it seemed like once he kind of got in a rhythm, like he really was enjoying having a conversation. Yeah, I mean, he clearly had a lot to say. He's had a very eventful four years and career for that matter. There's a line that you have in it that I thought kind of captured 
what his mindset might be like right now, where you say the previous three years had transpired for Jeff Sessions like a malarial <laughs> dream, uh, <laughs> which I mean, yeah, and on the one hand, like he got everything he had ever wanted. You know, there's a president who really kind of advocates Sessionsism more than, you know, Trumpism. He advocates everything that Sessions had stood for kind of quietly and lonely in the Senate during his entire time there. He was put into the attorney general position, started rolling back some of the Obama era plans and, and playing up law and order, playing up his beliefs on immigration. And then everything just kind of spiraled out of control, I guess, starting with the Russia recusal. Yeah, I mean, to pull back, if you really just put it just in the plainest terms possible, I mean, this guy went from being the most prized headliner for the Trump campaign in 2016, right? He was the first senator to endorse Trump. I still remember talking to Trump aides around that time, and they were like, you know what, this is when we feel like we went from kind of this group of ragtag wannabes to actual leaders of a movement. Like it was after that rally in Madison that I think the Trump campaign really felt like they could win this thing. And that was all because of Sessions. Like he gave them this veneer of legitimacy that nobody up to that point was willing to give them. And the dominoes started slowly sort of falling with his colleagues after that in the Senate. So, I mean, he was a huge gatekeeper for them in that way. And even though Trump now wants to say that Sessions begged for the job of attorney general, asked him four times, and he felt bad for him. No, it's not true. It was very clear that Sessions could have whatever job he wanted based on my reporting, and he had the one request, and it was attorney general. So to me, I mean, it's jarring for me to even think about that, how you go from that sort of paradigm to suddenly you wake up the morning after the November 2018 midterm elections and you're just waiting to get this call from John Kelly expressing the thing that Trump has wanted to do for the past two years, basically, which is fire you and never see you again. Right. And then constantly humiliate you on social media for the next two years. Yeah. I mean, it has sort of a Shakespearean tragic element to it. He goes from you know one of the most popular politicians in Alabama, if not the most popular politician in Alabama, to now lagging in the polls against a former Auburn football coach. But then you kind of point to this central paradox where like the Republican Party has the cult of personality around Donald Trump right now. But if you are an Alabama voter and you support Trumpism, you support all of the law and order and immigration policies and things like that, that Trump stands for, you know, there's still no really better flag bearer for those ideas than Jeff Sessions right now. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a perfect entry point to something I thought a lot about while writing this piece, which is that I've been to a lot of Trump rallies in the last couple of years. You know, I've obviously spoken to a lot of Trump supporters in Alabama about, you know, why they like the president. And what I find, I don't know if more often than not is necessarily fair, but what I find often when I talk to these people is that even though they say they support Trump's immigration policies and they want a wall and whatnot, if you were to actually ask them, okay, well, how much of the wall has been built? And in what way do you feel that's made your life change? Usually they don't know the reality that not much of the wall has been built at all. So it's been interesting for me, I think perhaps more bizarre for Sessions to see how actual advancements that he kind of made in these arenas, both 
on the Senate floor and then later at DOJ at a substantive level, while I think a lot of voters who support Trump will say, yes, I'm all about that. That's great. It still pales in comparison to kind of that emotional pull from Trump and what that means. I remember last year when I was at The Atlantic reporting on a story about how Trump will often make these grand pronouncements of stuff that he's going to do. And he wins all the points with voters right then, his supporters, because he says he's doing it. But then because of how fast paced everything is, very few people are going to kind of double back and say, okay, well, did that actually happen? And a perfect example of this was when he pledged to cut off aid to, I think it was Honduras, El Salvador, and one other country I'm forgetting. And I went to a Trump rally right after, and all the voters there I spoke to loved that he had done that. It turns out that he never actually did that. The State Department had been caught off guard. The Senate Appropriations Committee had gotten no instructions for how to proceed. I mean, it, it's, it was a cluster, and it never actually happened. But that wasn't necessarily the point. It was the posturing that that, that was the point. And I think that's where you're really seeing Sessions suffer, that kind of paradox, where while he does fulfill, as you were mentioning, the Trumpism at the most substantive level, he does not have that kind of folk psychology and cult of personality that I think is ultimately what Trump's appeal is anchored in, if that makes sense. Yeah. Sessions seems to have a little bit of that paradoxical psychology, too, in that you know, he professes law and order and law and order and law and order. And then talking with you about Syria and kind of points to Assad as like this strong man who clearly is not somebody who would be about law and order. But, you know, it's clear from Sessions' admiration of Trump and, you know, his willingness to kind of override some law and order in terms of breaking precedent, at least, if not the law at the executive level. Sessions always goes by the book for himself, but certainly seems drawn to some of these strongman characters. Yeah. And he never gave me a satisfactory answer when I pressed him on that either. I think I have one little exchange to that effect in the piece when I just kind of ask him, you know, why do you keep calling him a law and order president when, you know, the reason that he hates you is because you followed the rules. I can't remember exactly how that exchange took place, but I mean, he doesn't have a great answer for it. I, I think, in fact, he said, well, he's not a lawyer. He's a doer. Right, right. But that's just politics. But again, it that's always going to be something that you have to grapple with if your entire political persona is shaped around these cries of law and order. Well, let's talk a little bit about he gets fired, or at least, I guess, I mean, technically fired, but also publicly resigned, but forced to resign. And if I have the timeline right, he goes and he speaks with Trent Lott. And Trent Lott gives him all these recommendations. You could join a law firm, you know, give speeches, write a book, start a think tank. And I didn't know this until I read it in your piece. I just kind of assumed that Sessions opted not to go down any of those paths and decided to run for his previous Senate seat again. But it's kind of upsetting. He gets rejected by Maynard Cooper and Gale, a Birmingham legal firm. Can't find funding for a think tank. I guess he turned down the option to write a book. But yeah, you know, he became persona non grata. I definitely do think it was a mixture of, you know, rejections from firms like Maynard and then decisions more out of his own agency to say, no, I don't think this would be fulfilling for me. But I think ultimately you were left kind of by the end of 2019 with a guy who said, you know, I tried my hand quickly at a few of these different things. And ultimately, none of it sounds as good to me as just trying one last time to get back in there. 
Yeah. You know, I guess he knew when he joined that it was going to be competitive, but I don't know that he necessarily expected to be going into next week's runoff as the underdog. He hasn't been the underdog since he first won that seat. Well, I guess he was the underdog, like you mentioned, when he was rejected from the federal bench. But, you know, he had that moment of vindication where he won Al Heflin's seat. And then ever since then, he's only gone up, up until... November 2018. Yeah, exactly. And I think I'm so glad you brought up Heflin because I think knowing that whole sequence of events about Sessions that, you know, he was rejected from the federal judiciary. The pivotal vote came from Alabama's Democratic senior senator, Howell Heflin. A few years later, when Heflin announced that he was retiring, Sessions said, okay, he was attorney general of Alabama at the time. He said, okay, I'm going to run for that seat. And when he won, he said, okay, now I'm going to get a spot on that committee that spurned me. And he did. I think based on my reporting on sessions and certainly even my two-hour conversation with him, I do definitely get the sense that he is somebody who places a lot of faith, even beyond a strictly spiritual sense that, you know, God has a plan and his will for you will work out as it should. He seems to really firmly believe that if you follow the rules and do exactly what you're supposed to do, everything will work out for you in the end. And I think that's something that the whole just getting in the Senate in the first place kind of affirmed for him. I think that becoming the Trump campaign's prized headliner kind of affirmed that for him. I mean, you have to remember, John, his colleagues thought he was insane when he was George Trump. I mean, they really thought he was insane. Yeah. And I, I even spoke to people and Sessions' hometown of Camden, who told me, just childhood friends of his, that when he endorsed Trump, they thought he was insane. I I mean, he really stuck his neck out there, but it worked out for him Uh in the short term. He became attorney general. And so I think often throughout his life, his professional career, I should say, he had seen time and again that, you know, doing what he thought was quote unquote right always worked out well for him. And then, you know, you're met with the personality of a man who's whims seem to dictate a lot more these days than regular order does, as Jeff Sessions is so fond of. And I think that's been really jarring for him as he's gone through this process. Well, and it's been really interesting, you know, seeing the administration's response to Black Lives Matter protests and, you know, coronavirus and things like that. And you can kind of still see Sessions' policy influence in the speeches that Stephen Miller writes and in the photo opportunity outside the church in Washington, D.C. Sessions is still kind of there in terms of lasting influence. It's just he's not the face of it anymore. Right. And I think that makes it all the harder for Sessions for him to look up there and say, I was lonely in advocating these ideas for two decades, basically. And now they're, they kind of comprise the zeitgeist of this government. And yet the commander in chief wants nothing to do with me. Well, you know, I don't know if you're in the business of prognosticating. Um, (laughs) But just for the sake of argument, you know, what do you think happens next week? Do you think that uh, Sessions is able to pull out one last hurrah? I'll say this. I think that the coronavirus delaying the runoff from, I think it was supposed to be March 10th, March 11th, I can't remember, but delaying it from then until July 14th, I do think was a godsend for Sessions. I think he absolutely would have lost had that runoff been immediately after the first primary election. But having had this time to kind of carve out a space for him, talking about things like China and whatnot, while Tommy Tuberville has kind of gone radio silent, more or less, I think it's been helpful to his campaign. It's not surprising to me that there have been a few polls showing some 
movement. Granted, those polls still show him trailing Tupperville, but I do want to be clear that I don't think it is as much of a long shot now as it was back in March. That said, I don't know. I mean, he he really is the underdog. I mean, it would absolutely be an upset if he were to win. My sense is that the way he wins is if turnout is low. I think if turnout is high, probably doesn't have much of a chance. But if turnout is low and he can kind of pick off those Bradley Byrne votes from the Mobile area and around there, then, I mean, who knows? He might have a shot. Yeah. And with coronavirus trending up like it is in Alabama and absentee voting being kind of frowned upon in the Republican Party right now, certainly seems like turnout could be low enough for him to win. Right. Coming up after the break, Elena Plott discusses the night she was shot and why she still has mixed feelings about the gun debate. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. As the novel coronavirus wreaks havoc in Alabama and across the world, these are the stories of the people seeking to survive the disease and its economic strain. I've been doing this 40 years. I bet I've fired five people in my entire life. And, you know, we're in the process of laying off hundreds of people. And I can tell you that's as tough as anything we've ever done. A lot of us don't have health insurance. A lot of us don't have sick days. You can't collect unemployment when shows cancel. Everyone is worried. Everyone is tense. Everyone is concerned. I have a business that I cannot even run. For two months now, I've been closed. I have five employees. They keep asking me when we're going to reopen, and I don't know yet. I'm an optimistic guy, and, and I think that my group is smart enough and hardworking enough and kind enough to get us through this, whatever they throw at us. And, and that's certainly my hope. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a Pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you have written a number of profiles on prominent conservatives, one that comes to mind, Tucker Carlson. I wonder if some of your ability to kind of get access to some of these conservative leaders, despite working for outlets like the New York Times and the Atlantic, kind of goes back to your Tuscaloosa, Alabama roots. Does it help to be a Southerner when trying to line up some of these interviews? Oh, of course. And I mean that far beyond anything, just looking at my resume. I think it's more of an affect. Shortly after I started at the Times, I did a story about Trump supporters in Michigan. And I remember emailing the chairman of a county GOP there and in the email, I used the word y'all like I do in just about every email I write. And I remember getting an email back from her being like, we usually don't talk with the New York Times or we're usually wary of the media. But I feel like since you used y'all, you might be nicer to talk to. And she didn't mean sympathetic necessarily. I think I think it makes you come off as non-threatening in a way. Mm-hmm. There's just an affect there. Every Southerner has it or most do, I think. And I certainly think with the GOP, when people are so critical of the media and so wary, it is definitely helpful. Well, and I mean, you go all the way back to the New York Times versus Sullivan Supreme Court case. And there's always been kind of this disconnect between Alabamians and the New York Times and like sort of their animosity from Alabama looking out toward the New York Times, possibly New York Times looking 
into or in some cases looking down on Alabama. I think when most Alabamians think of the New York Times, certainly if they'd read it in a Trump tweet or or hear a politician talk about it, they probably don't picture a woman from Tuscaloosa, you know, who got her start writing for the National Review. And it might be fair to say that when the New York Times thinks of itself, they don't think of you either. And so like, do you feel like you're kind of caught in a paradox right now? No, I don't feel caught in a paradox. Mm -hmm. I see my job in really simple terms, which is just to tell good stories and tell them truthfully, seek out people I find interesting and learn about what motivates them and why they matter in this moment, in any moment, whatever. And you know, I just happen to bring a perspective that maybe not everyone else has, but I think newsrooms are made all the stronger by that. It's not going to be useful for anyone, our readers especially, if everybody who covers politics is some kid from Greenwich. I'm nothing against kids from Greenwich, but like if everybody's experience exists within a vacuum, I just don't think it's necessarily the most trustworthy perch from which to purport to tell stories about the nation and about the entire world for that matter. So I don't know. I see myself as perfectly in line with the goals of the times and certainly my goals for myself. Do you ever run into, I mean, I I experienced this working for a local outlet in Alabama. You know, I'll have family members sometimes decry me as fake news. Do you experience some good nature ribbing, bad nature ribbing from friends and family back home? Oh, yeah. I get the good nature ribbing all the time. Everybody (laughs) loves to text me whenever Sean Hannity comes up with a new name for a newspaper. I think was it the New York Toilet Paper Times recently or something? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. You'll have to fact check me on that. There was something with the word toilet paper in it. And people back home thought that was hilarious. But it's it's always good natured. And in fact, you know, my family now subscribes to the New York Times. I mean, they're huge supporters. And I'm very lucky in that respect. Well, and you've worked, I guess, for two outlets that have been specifically targeted by the president with The Atlantic and The New York Times. To circle back on something that you kind of talked about, you know, this intent to kind of capture people in their messy complexity. You know, I feel like the fact that you grew up here and have worked in D.C. and and went to school at Yale, you know, you've seen a lot of various perspectives, which does seem to give you the skill set to play around in the gray area. I think one of the pieces that a lot of people think about when it comes to your writing and capturing that is the conversation around the gun debate when you write about being shot when you were growing up in Tuscaloosa. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. When I was 21 years old, I was home from college for the summer in Tuscaloosa. And around nine o'clock at night, I was driving by myself. I was about a mile from my house at a red light. And I just suddenly noticed a silver truck kind of turning the corner next to me. And then I heard a pop sound, just like a very airy pop. And then it felt like my arm was on fire. And I remember thinking, why do people play paintball? This hurts so badly. Your first thought is never, oh, I just got shot. Right. But then I looked down and my arm was bleeding profusely. And I was like, hmm, this is an issue. So I pulled over into a gas station and I called my dad and he was going to come get me. But I was just insistent on driving home. I don't know why. It's, I mean, it's kind of weird in that you you have no idea what you would do until you got in that situation. Like it never occurred to me to call 911 or anything like that. And I just wanted to go home. But they never caught the guy or anything like that. But my editor at The Atlantic, Jeff Goldberg, I mentioned that story to him for some reason. And I can't remember why. Maybe it was in the aftermath of a mass shooting. And 
he was like, you really should write an essay about that. I mean, has it complicated the way you think about gun culture and, you know, where you grew up and Alabama's relationship with guns? And I said it had, but I didn't want to write the piece for that reason, because I think, you know, I do think a problem in journalism today a lot of times is everybody wants things to be on a binary, like a really black and white narrative, really simplistic. You know, you start with a premise and you come to a conclusion at the end. And your thesis for a story is just very neat. And you just happen to find all the quotes that back it up perfectly. When life is not like that at all, nobody is like that. But you know, it's hard to write with nuance. It's hard to write about ambivalence and even more so when it's about yourself. So writing that story, John, was excruciating. I went through so many drafts of that thing because again, when like I was just a few years out of college and everything you do in college with academic papers is like you put forth an argument and then you back it up with evidence. And then my argument was essentially, I don't have an argument, but I don't understand why. And that's the story I'm going to try to tell. And that was really hard to write. I mean, I kid you not at the desk I'm sitting at right now, I remember being so done with writing that story. I was like, I would rather get shot again than (laughs) I'd rather relive it because this is miserable. But I am really proud of how it turned out in the end. I had some amazing editors, but I definitely encourage writers to try and write about something they're not sure about because Lord knows it, it gets you thinking. Well, and there's plenty of topics in the South to cover that territory. One thing I guess that stuck out is you know, you write about changing your preconceptions about how Alabamians felt about gun culture. I don't remember if it was your father or a grandfather who owns a um, store, Yeah, your grandfather who owns a store in Tuscaloosa and, you know, his kind of nuance about the gun debate. I mean, even though I identify with Alabama first and foremost, in terms of where I'm from and, you know, all that comes with it, I do think even people who claim their heritage as Southerners. If you, you know, you live in DC for a while, you live in New York or any city for a while, you also risk getting kind of caught in a bubble. And I think in the midst of all the mass shootings, even I sort of found myself falling prey to like this easy narrative that, you know, people in Alabama or people in the deep South all felt the same way about guns. And it was either like rah, 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 second amendment all the way, or it was up North, you know, ban all guns, take them all from everyone. And, you know, I hate that. And writing that piece was so good for me to really check myself and not let myself get lazy in that way, intellectually lazy, because there are so many issues that we can do that on. And to be able to see it firsthand in a place that I would have told you I knew better than just about anyone and see how wrong I was and how much nuance and depth and complication there really was with my neighbor's my own family members' relationships with guns that I was not cognizant of, was, I guess, too lazy to sit down for a moment and comprehend, was really illuminating for me. And like I said, ever since then, I'm just always very, very hyper aware of in what other areas I might fall prey to that in journalism, just kind of assuming that whatever narrative is set forth by Twitter or whatnot is actually a reflection of how people feel about these controversial issues. Yeah, I I think a lot of writers kind of think in those binary terms, a lot of politicians, problem of politics in Alabama and and other places is that politicians don't necessarily take the time to see how nuanced their constituents views Mm. are on things. So true. But it is, you know, at least for me, it's what kind of draws me back to the place in terms of 
telling richer stories down here. Do you ever think about lobbying the New York Times to let you work out of Atlanta, let you work out of a Birmingham, let you work out of a, a Southern Bureau at some point? Oh, I would love nothing more. If I could start a Nashville or a Birmingham Bureau, I would be the happiest person alive. Yeah. Maybe at my one year mark. <laughs> That's true. A little early to be. <laughs> I feel like with the coronavirus, it's shown us, you know, just how much we can do our work from anywhere. So maybe I've got a good case now. That's true. Yeah. I mean, we've all been working from home for, you know, 110, 120 days at this point. There has been a lot of conversation about, you know, the changing culture of newsrooms at New York Times, at Washington Post, you know, how does that conversation kind of appear in your world when you're writing some of these stories? I mean, those are conversations that I wouldn't say I'm necessarily privy to. What I can say is that, I don't know, I ever since I started with the Times in December, every day, it's just been amazing one-on-one -on -one conversations with my editor about what stories we want to do next and how we can do it in the best way. So in terms of, you know, contemplating the broader culture of the place, one, I don't even think I've been there long enough to be a factor in those conversations. And two, it's just never been something that's um, seemed to factor into the way I do my job at, on a day-to-day -day basis. You are also working on a book because apparently you like working, I guess, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds right up my alley because it kind of speaks to the duality of Alabama with Judge Johnson and George Wallace and their kind of friendship and then falling apart. What drew you to the topic and, and what is it that you're trying to to answer for yourself in writing about it? I guess I should start by saying I really wanted to do a biography. I've always wanted to write a biography. And I think in January of last year, I had gotten so burnt out with covering the Trump administration and just, you know, the current state of politics in general that the need to kind of come up with a book project I felt passionately about felt all the more urgent. I just needed some kind of history to escape to just to kind of get me away from the present moment. And i had always known that I wanted to do something about home, about Alabama. And I talked with my mentor, Stephen Brill, and we were tossing around ideas. And he said, why don't you write a biography of Frank Johnson? And then he said, and if you don't know who that is, you're not a real Alabamian. And of course, I didn't know who it was. <laughs> so embarrassing in retrospect. I mean, he's not hes not a story who's commonly told. Well, Alabama, so right, right. And that ultimately got to the reason I felt so passionately about telling it. But, um, you know, I looked him up and I was like, oh, my God, this is the guy who essentially desegregated the South. And so from there, as I'm looking into this towering figure, I kind of find the thread of his improbable close friendship with George Wallace throughout college and throughout law school, and how even immediately in their early careers, George Wallace wrote letters to President Eisenhower endorsing Frank Johnson's nomination to the federal district judiciary. I mean, just really all these things. And then all of a sudden, you know, it all falls apart, mainly when George Wallace becomes governor. And at the time, Frank Johnson is the judge for the middle district of Alabama, a federal judge. They are each other's number one nemeses when it comes to these major questions of segregation. I mean, Johnson's very first case ever was to rule in favor of Rosa Parks and Browder v. Gale to desegregate the buses. And so on from there with everything. I mean, I would say probably the decision 
everyone knows best would be his ruling to allow the Selma march to go forward, which was such a blow in the public eye to George Wallace and kind of his entire enterprise. And I just became so fascinated by the idea of telling the story of the civil rights movement in Alabama through the lens of their relationship. And it also kind of complicates, I guess, the story that a lot of Alabamians tell themselves about like it being the feds that kind of came in and forced everything. Johnson was an Alabamian as much as Wallace was, I guess. He was, but you know what? I guess Alabamians always find a way to fashion their enemies. But when he was nominated to the Middle District, the Montgomery Advertiser ran an editorial lambasting the nomination because he was from Winston County, aka North Alabama, which made him a, quote, carpetbagger. Oh. So you never win with these guys sometimes. But it took a long, long time, but ultimately kind of attained his place in history. But his name will never be known in the way that George Wallace's is, obviously. I think that's just inherent in the difference between the judiciary and politics. But I'm hoping with my book, I can, you know, paint a fuller portrait and give some resonance to this person who really just instituted the legal framework of so much of what we understand today with regard to voting rights and gerrymandering and one person, one vote, things like that. You know, when you wrote your Tucker Carlson profile in particular, I guess I saw a lot of animosity online about, I mean, to use their language, humanizing somebody like Tucker Carlson, who is obviously human. (laughs) How do you respond to some of that criticism about, you know, giving voice to, I guess, people like him who already have a nightly platform? I think the verb humanize is such a weird one, because I think to me, what I wanted to understand about Tucker Carlson is what is it about this person that makes millions and millions of people each night decide to tune into him? And to this point, more than even Sean Hannity, what is he saying? What is he speaking to about this cultural moment that is so resonant with people? I think the idea that somehow it's bad to quote unquote, give voice to that is really absurd. To me, it just means if you don't want to do that, then you're just turning a blind eye to what's happening to your country. But to go back to this idea of humanizing someone, I mean, I never even think of myself as trying to do that. I just try to understand somebody's motivations, what they believe and why they believe it to the best of my ability to try and make sense of why other people are so drawn to them, maybe. I think that we've reached kind of this weird moment among certain circles in journalism where the idea of interiority is seen as inherently softball or it's like something that's best fit, I don't know, for a women's magazine or some such. But in my view, when you're talking about some of the most powerful people in the country, whether in electoral politics or in the news media, I find that under trying to understand their motivations and using that as the lens through which to kind of pull apart the actual decisions they make that affect people in this country to be enormously useful. To me, I've never really struggled with whether or not I should do that. It feels pretty natural to me as a journalist. But I think a lot of the criticism of that piece too, and I get this with a lot of pieces other times also, is that I really would just rather, as much as I can, let my subjects speak 
for themselves. Like a New York Times editor had a really great thread to this effect the other day when some other piece was getting, not mine, but somebody's piece was getting criticized for that reason. And he was saying, why are we in this time when everyone wants you to have a, to be sure, this is bad paragraph? In a lot of instances, I would prefer the inanity or horror of whatever it is I've elicited from my subject to stand on its own. And that doesn't mean you don't contextualize, you don't push back, nothing like that. But in a lot of instances, I find a to be sure this is bad paragraph to be pretty insulting to the intelligence of my reader. Well, and, you know, even to go back to the sessions piece, I mean, there's this part where, you know, it's toward the end of your conversation, and he's kind of wistful for his time growing up in Camden. And I guess he kind of trails off, but it seems like he's waxing nostalgic about you know, the days of segregation. And I don't remember the exact language that he used, but having an upper hand, having the privileges that that afforded him. And that moment stands on its own. I mean, it's powerful enough. You know what he's saying. Like, I don't know that I needed you as a writer to walk me through exactly what he's conveying there because it's it's pretty clear. Well, I think it's just helpful to give your reader a sense of how your subject actually thinks through things. I mean, that that was what was honestly such a blessing about the end of that interview with Sessions when he really sort of started to seem to occupy his own world. And it was as if I wasn't even there. And he was sort of thinking through these things on his own. And the segregation moment in particular, it was him sort of trying to reconcile, okay, this time was really idyllic and I loved it and I missed it a lot. And it's the only thing that feels right and certain to me right now. But how do I reconcile that fact with you know, this really terrible thing that underlay it all. Is it possible for me to like long for and love this place, even with the caveat that maybe the reason I do long for and love it is because I had these advantages as afforded by segregation. To me, that felt like a really, really raw, intimate moment that would have been totally ruined if I had injected myself in any way, not just in the writing, but in the interview too. I mean, that moment I was sitting there dead silent, just letting him ruminate and seeing, you know, how he worked these things out in his head. And I find that to be pretty revealing. I haven't gotten that much in interviews with politicians before. And I think if your instinct as a journalist in those moments or even on the page is to make it about you and how combative you can be and intellectually superior you can be or whatever, you know, you're doing it wrong. You're totally doing it wrong. I mean, it speaks to so much about, I guess, the conversations that are being had in this current moment about even these Confederate iconography that's coming down, that being that same sort of wistfulness that Sessions expresses and, you know, the Make America Great Again sloganing. It's all kind of captured up in that one moment that, you know, you could have lost if you had cut him off early on in the conversation and and been combative with him. Right. It's why I could never be a TV journalist. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too quiet most of the time. (laughs) You do TV, but it says yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think I would be so bad at actually interviewing someone on television because I so prefer to try to get to a place with a subject where they are just talking and I'm just listening. And that doesn't make great viral YouTube clips. (laughs) No, you'd have to have, uh, I guess Paul Feinbaum gets to do some of that with four hours of radio every day. Right. Right. (laughs) What have you learned about the South and about Southerners during your career? You know, I'm thinking of your Tangier Island piece. I'm thinking of a lot of your profiles. How is your, and we, we talked a little bit about gun culture a little while ago. You know, how has your 
impression of this place that raised you changed, you know, from the lens of a reporter? Hmm, That's a good question. I think when you're a reporter, you will just inevitably appreciate things more. And I don't mean that in a sentimental sense. I mean that in a kind of colors start to seem brighter. You start to notice nuance more. You just things you would have taken for granted if you just lived there become suddenly urgent and important when you're looking at it through the lens of a writer. You know, I was just in Montgomery reporting both the sessions piece, but also doing research on my book and talking to people and meeting people who I probably never would have spent a lot of time with, even if I had just been living in Alabama, just because without this job and how it compels me to try and meet new people and learn new things, I never would have come across otherwise. And I think I'm just constantly just so energized and excited by the texture of the South and the hope of the South in spite of everything. I think there's a real intimacy there that I certainly know I miss while I'm here in DC that I know I missed when I was in college in the Northeast. And I think in moments like this, as tough as it is for the country right now, I think the South stands to benefit just all the more from conversations like this. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you, John. It was great to be on. And that's all the time we have this week, folks. Thank you to Elena Plot for her time. You can find her on Twitter at, at Elena Plot. If you like this conversation and you're interested in more of Jeff Sessions' backstory, I suggest you go find Reckon Radio Season 2, Recused, produced and hosted by my colleague Amy Yerkinen. She dives into some of his early days and how they informed his later career. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It was produced and edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like our show, please consider subscribing, sharing with your friends, and giving us a five-star review. And go follow Reckon on all of our social channels and visit our new site, ReckonSouth.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.